Good evening, church. Would you please open up your Bibles to Luke chapter 11? We are going to be continuing our study through Luke. Um, Tonight, we're going to be going through verses 14 through 26. In most of your Bibles, it's a passage titled, Jesus in Beelzebul. Um, So you already know we're going to have some fun tonight. Um, Well, yeah, Luke 11, 14 through 26. Now he was casting out a demon that was mute. When the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke, and the people marveled. But some of them said, He casts out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons. While others, to test him, kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. But he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a, king, and a divided household falls. And if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul. And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places, seeking rest, and finding none, it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for for this church that you've given us. For our, our Sunday evenings that we get to gather and be in your word. And, and Lord, we come before you. Lord, we pray that, that you speak to us tonight. That as I stand here and, and say words, Lord, that they would not be of me, but of you. That you would be speaking to me, to each and every one of us tonight, Lord. And Lord, anything that I say that's unhelpful or confusing, Lord, may it fall aside and let your word prevail, Lord. May your spirit be in us today, Lord revealing your truth to each and every one of us, Lord. We thank you and we love you. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. So, like I said earlier, we have an interesting text tonight. Just reading through it, it kind of feels a little fractured. There's multiple things happening, multiple ideas that are brought up. Um, But the wonderful thing about preaching through the Bible, verse by verse, is that You don't need to drum up some new profound idea every Sunday. You don't need a new wow factor to bring to each sermon, to to get people hooked or in. God has provided everything pertaining to life and godliness in his words, in his word, and he's provided the material for us, for preachers to come before you to present that material, that word. The terrifying thing about that, though, is that it is God's word that we are to present, and there's a responsibility on us to handle it rightly, to preach it rightly. Um, And sometimes the material can be a little odd, a little confusing, Um, especially the the ending of our text today. There's some interesting stuff going on there that feels out of place from the rest of the passage. Um, But we'll cross that bridge when we get there. But we begin in verse 14. And Luke sets the context for our passage. He sets the scene. In 14, he says, Now he, that is Jesus, was casting out a demon that was mute. When the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke, and the people marveled. If you recall, the last few weeks, Jesus has been on the topic of prayer. His disciples have asked asked him to teach them to pray, And he's been going through what prayer looks like, what it sounds like, what its purpose is, how we are to pray. And we're moving on from prayer back to Jesus doing the work of the ministry. And I think it's interesting, just a note, 
that when Jesus had been talking about prayer, right, something that we do with our hearts, our minds, our mouths, it's a call for us to communicate with God, to worship Him. It goes from that, something that we are to do with our mouths, to a demon-possessed man who is not allowed to use his mouth. Um, I don't know how intentional that is. Some commentaries make a big deal about it. Some do not. Who knows? But it's something to consider. Um, but we've seen that Jesus has moved on, or Luke has moved on from the topic of prayer now to a conversation that Jesus has, people that are listening to him, that are witnessing a miracle. And among teaching and healing, one of the most common miracles, or one of the common miracles that Jesus performs throughout his ministry is that of casting out demons, of exorcisms. There is significant emphasis about, uh, with this all over the Gospels. Between chapter 4, where Luke begins the narrative of Jesus' ministry in his book, and the point where we're at today in chapter 11, Luke has spoken about either Jesus or the disciples casting out demons ten times, this being the eleventh. Between 4 and chapter 11, that's seven chapters, and this is the eleventh time we're seeing it. So we see that this isn't something that Jesus did one time for one special occasion. This is something that was an active and consistent part of the ministry. He was doing this everywhere he went. In fact, the very first miracle that Jesus performs in Luke's account, in the way that Luke presents the story of Jesus, his ministry, the very first miracle that he mentions is Jesus freeing a man from demon possession. That happens in Luke chapter 4, verses 31 through 37. And we read, And he went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath. And they were astonished at his teaching, for his word possessed authority. And in the synagogue there was a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon. And he cried out with a loud voice, Ha, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in their midst, he came out of him, having done him no harm. And they were all amazed and said to one another, What is this word? For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits and they come out. The reports about him went out into every place in the surrounding region. We see that Jesus has power and authority. That's the, the, the conclusion that the people who see this make. And Luke records all sorts of different types of miracles throughout the gospel account. And he does so to display this power and authority of Jesus. He does so to display that who Jesus is, his identity, just like this demon says, he's the Holy One of God. And he does so to display that Jesus has supremacy over all things. He can heal the sick, young or old, regardless of age. He raises the dead at one point, And he has power over nature. And here we see that he has even power over the spiritual realm, the unseen realm. And Luke tells us that when people saw this in chapter 4, this first miracle, they were amazed. They were in awe of the power and authority that Jesus had, and word about him began to spread. The news spread. Jesus had a reputation. He spoke with power and authority, with wisdom, and he was casting out demons. Who could be like this man? Who is this? And by the time we get to the exorcism that happens in our text tonight in chapter 11, Jesus has been doing this for a couple of years now. And people have been hearing about this. They've been hearing about it. They've been hearing rumors, stories about this Jesus. And when they, the people in our text today, see it for themselves, the majority of them marvel at it. They heard about it, but seeing for themselves, they're blown away. Right? It's one thing to hear rumors, to hear stories. But to see it with your very own eyes is a complete other ballgame, right? I was thinking about this and what to compare it to. And I think, I was thinking back, as most, most of you know, my wife is Egyptian. Um, and in 2018, I got to go to Egypt, meet her family, see them, see all of the historical sites, museums, things like that. And I think it's fair to say that every single one of us knows about the pyramids. There is no um, secret there. We've heard about them, documentaries, pictures online, um, textbooks in school. There's all sorts of conspiracy theories about them, right? We know what they are. We've heard the rumors. We've heard the stories. But to go and see them with my own eyes is a whole different thing. 
to stand before them, see the size of them, the scale, and the type of stones that were used. I marveled at it, right? For lack of a better term, it was incredible. I think similarly, for the people that are seeing Jesus perform this miracle in our text, they had heard about it. They knew something about this Jesus. That's why they were coming to see him. They had heard. But to see him perform this in person, Luke says they were marveling at it. But Luke also says that there are those there who witness this incredible thing happen and they are not at all impressed. Matthew and Mark, they tell the same story. Matthew does so in chapter 12 of his account of the gospel. Mark does it in chapter 3. But they say that there's these doubters there. Matthew says that they are um, Pharisees. Mark, I think, believe he says they're scribes. So they are the, rigi- the religious elite. While the common folk are in awe of what Jesus is doing, the religious elite say, nah, they doubt. And this is how Luke records it, that there are those who marvel. But he says, but some of them, he said, he casts out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons while others, to test him, kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. And so Luke says that the religious elite, there are those here that see this miracle with their very own eyes, and there are two groups of them that are doubters. Two groups that do not respond like everybody else. And I quickly want to address the second group that Luke mentions, because Jesus doesn't speak directly to them in the passage that we're going through today. We're going to get to that. He crosses, the, or he mentions their desire for a sign in verse 29. So I think we're probably a couple weeks away from that, but we'll get there. But this second group of doubters, they want to test Jesus. They want him to give a sign from heaven to prove who he is so that they would believe. Demon possession, stories about healings, it's not enough. We want the next thing, the next thing, the next thing. Jesus, prove who you are on our own terms, right? But you'd think that witnessing an exorcism with your very own eyes might get you thinking, might be enough to, con- to convince you, you know. I don't think, I don't know, I'd wager most of us probably have not witnessed like something like this in our lives, but if we had, we'd probably be stirred to something, right? I'd like to think so. Um, but for these people, it wasn't enough. And as we've seen before, and as we'll continue to see throughout the Gospels, throughout the stories we read in, in, in all of the accounts of Jesus' ministry, that no signs, no miracles were enough for these people. Their hearts were hard and they were blind to the truth. Jesus is going to get to this soon. Like I said, in a couple of weeks, we'll probably get there in verse 29. And he calls that these doubters, those who are continually looking for more signs, more signs, more miracles, he calls them a wicked generation. But the first group of doubters is the one that Jesus addresses in our passage this evening. They are the ones that not only doubt Jesus, but they have already made up their minds about who he is. Luke says, but some of them said he casts out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons. They've heard about Jesus, and now they've seen it for themselves, and they've decided unequivocally this is not the Messiah. But on the contrary, he is something sinister. He is not from God, but from the evil one. They say this power and authority, this wisdom, it's not from God. It is from Beelzebul, the prince of demons. It's interesting, right, when we mention that exorcism that happens at the beginning of Jesus' ministry here. That demon knows who Jesus is. He says, I know who you are. You are the Holy One of, of God. And those who witness the same type of miracle here do the exact opposite. He's not the Holy One of God, but he is himself one of these demons, one of these wicked ones. And so I want to take a little bit of time to kind of figure out who is Beelzebul. Why are they calling Jesus this? And how does Jesus respond? Um, Obviously here they call Beelzebul the prince of demons. Why they don't use Satan or another type of demon, it's you know, not really answered here. Um, interestingly enough, in the text later on, Jesus kind of responds in a way that would make you assume that Jesus just reacts to the name Beelzebul as Satan himself. Um, but the name isn't used frequently in the Bible. It's not a common uh, name for Satan or for demons. 
but it's most likely derived from a story in 2 Kings, in the first chapter. Uh, this is how 2 Kings starts. There's a story of one of the kings. His name is Ahaziah. And he had fallen out of his window. Doesn't say how or why, what he was doing outside of his window. He fell, injured himself terribly, and now he is bedridden with injuries and illness, and he's afraid that he's going to die. And so what he does is he sends messengers to the pagan Philistine city of Ekron. And he wants them to find out if he's going to recover. He specifically tells them, Go inquire of Baal Zebub, the god of Ekron, whether I shall recover from this sickness. He does this with his own messengers. He doesn't inquire of any prophets of God, of any priests, doesn't pray out, cry out to God himself, but he sends his own messengers to a pagan city to do this. But God knows his plans. God knows Ahaziah's intentions and what he's looking for, what he's doing. And so God speaks to Elijah and tells him, go to Ahaziah and tell him this. And God's words to Ahaziah are, is it because there is no God in Israel that you are going to inquire of Baal Zebub? God takes this very seriously that his people would turn to a pagan deity rather than to him is a massive offense to him. And what God does is he brings judgment on Ahaziah. He gives him the answer to Ahaziah's question, and it's not a good one. He tells, them, he tells him that the bed that you now lie in, you will never get up out of again. Because of your sin, you are going to die. We see that God hates when his people turn from him and go after other gods, after other things. And when Ahaziah decides to inquire of this Baal Zebub, God does not take it as Ahaziah just trying to find answers. He doesn't take it as Ahaziah just trying to find truth, going on his spiritual journey to find meaning or truth. But God takes it as a complete rejection of him. A denial that the true God of Israel even exists at all. It's a sort of a sobering story for us, right? It doesn't really have anything to do with our passage that we're going to go through today. But I want to stop here and just think about this. Especially in our world today where the push for inclusivity and a more loving and accepting Christianity has been accompanied by an attempt to blend it with all sorts of other things. With whatever philosophy is cool or uh, at the forefront every other month. Whatever mysticism seems to be creeping into our culture. We've seen this especially with a lot of the woke thinking within our culture right now, with New Age uh, thinking over the last few decades, and the way it's invaded the church and warped the gospel. That we need to improve Christianity using different philosophies, mysticism, maybe other religions. And we see this as incredibly prevalent today in our churches. And I think God could very easily come and do the same in many churches today, where he would come and ask, is there no God? Is there no Jesus in your church that you would go and inquire of mystics, of other philosophies and secular minds? And I think I know, or I know that that's a bit of a rabbit trail from our text, right? We want to know who, find out who is Beelzebub. But I think it's important for us to stop and think about those kind of things. Are we sometimes like a Hosiah going after other gods? knowing this is what God has said in his word, but what about this thinker? What about this teacher? What about this philosophy? There is no, right, there's a phrase syncretism, the mixing of God, Christianity with other things, and God does not stand for it. But we see that here this God, this God of the Philistines, the city of Ekron, Baal Zebub, He's brought up here, and he's a pagan deity, one that God hates and opposes. And basically, every commentary I looked at linked Beelzebul in the New Testament to this God here in this passage in 2 Kings. And most commentaries say that most likely the original name of this pagan deity in 2 Kings is Baal Zebul, not Baal Zebub. Bear with me, we're going to say Baal's a something quite a few times here. Um, it can get a little confusing. I might even stumble over it a few times. But there's an interesting 
uh, kind of a roadmap of the way the name has been changed or corrupted to mean what it means in the New Testament. Um, originally, right, the name Baal Zebul, Baal meaning God, and Zebul meaning an exalted one. So to the Philistines, this was the exalted God, or in other words, the God of the high place, an incredibly powerful, well-thought-of deity. But in the Old Testament, when the author here in Second Kings refers to him as Baal Zebub, it is a bit of a corruption of the, the name. Going from the God of the exalted place or the Lord of the high place, it is now the Lord of the flies. And this seems to be an intentional change. Um, this is no longer an elevated, important deity. Now this is the Lord of flies. One of the commentaries I had read that said that the fly was linked to the Jewish people uh, to death and dead things, something we can easily see ourselves when something is rotting as flies on it, right? There is this idea of the fly being involved with impure and dead things. And so it was more or less, well, flies were more or less thought of as impure and demonic at the time. And so this Baalzebub is now seen as the lord of impure and evil things, an enemy of God. And by the time the New Testament comes around, he's attributed the name of prince of demons. He's no longer this lord of exalted high places, but he is an outright enemy of God and considered either a leader of demons or Satan himself. Um, within the commentaries, we're going to take a little comedic pit stop here. Some of them even indicate that there is even further corruption in the name, that by the time the, the New Testament comes around with the name Beelzebul, that the word Zebul means dung or poop. So this um, God, this deity that was of the high place exalted is now moved down to the Lord of the flies of the death and dying of uh, impure things and now simply to the Lord of dung or poop. Not everybody agrees on this, but I thought maybe some of the younger ones and some of our immature brothers might enjoy that as I did. Maybe not. It's all right. Either way, it paints a picture of how negatively viewed this deity was, this God. Um, he is not one to go seek advice from, but on the contrary, he is an enemy of God. And so these Pharisees see Jesus and they say, you are of this creature, of this wicked Lord, of prince of demons, right? The exact opposite of what that conclusion, the earlier demon made in chapter four. And so why is this con their, their conclusion? Why would they go to this point? Simply put, I think it's because their hearts are hard, right? They refuse to believe that this is from God. There's no way that this traveling teacher, this random dude going around doing miracles is of God. He's not the promised Messiah. No way, no how. He doesn't look, sound, or feel like the one we've been expecting. And so there's no way he is sent by God. If he is not of God, he must be the opposite. How else would he have this power? What else would he be doing? Or how could he be doing these things? Another layer to this is that if it's true, if this Jesus is of Satan, if he's doing these deeds with magic, with sorcery, dark magic, by the power of Satan, this means that this is an abomination before God, something that God completely opposed and said there was capital punishment for this. So if they're right, if they could accuse Jesus of practicing sorcery, of dark magic, of colluding with Satan, they can publicly execute and stone him. It's an easy, convenient way to get rid of him and justify themselves by the law of God. So how does Jesus respond? What is his response to this claim? Jesus, or Luke writes, but he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a divided household falls. If Satan is also divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul. And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. First off, Luke tells us that Jesus knows their thoughts. 
Apparently, their doubts about him, the presumptions about his power, were not spoken directly to him. This was not a public forum where they stood up and accused him of something. Either they were thinking these things in their minds, or they were whispering it amongst each other. Either way, Jesus knows their thoughts. Not only can he heal, not only can he exercise demons, but he knows the deepest recesses of their hearts and minds. There is no hiding motive or intention with him. Luke has been pointing to Jesus' true identity over and over again as he's been going throughout the gospel, and he does it here again. What kind of man can do all these things? What kind of man can heal, can speak with such wisdom, power, and authority? What kind of man knows the thoughts and hearts of other men? Jesus is not just some ordinary man with special powers. And I think that the verses that we just read Right, Jesus' response to them, if they were found in an article today, um, there would be some clickbait title like, Jesus owns haters with facts and logic. Maybe some meme of uh, Jesus' face um, photoshopped on a wrestler body slamming a Pharisee. Right? It would be all over the internet. Um, and that's probably an irreverent way to phrase it, but it's kind of what Jesus does. Um, He does not perform additional signs to impress them. He doesn't um, make an attempt to use powers to win them over. But he addresses their doubts, their ideas of him. He does it with simple logic. He does it on a logical level, just argues their point. And he starts with something of a universal rule. He doesn't go to, to quoting something directly from God or from Scripture. He uses a universal rule that they would have probably known themselves, kind of like a, well, duh, type of thing. He says, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a divided household fall. And if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? Again, Jesus is not presenting some new, mind-blowing revelation here that no one has thought of before. He's using something that would be plain and evident to anyone. I think everyone here can probably think of a moment in their lives or the lives of someone around them where this concept can be applied. When there is division or disunity within relationships, within communities, within countries, the outcome is almost always catastrophic. Jesus says this is true on the macro level, on the big picture, on the global scale. And when there is a division within a kingdom, there is destruction. And the Israelites, they didn't have to think very hard for an example of this. The nation of Israel was marked by division and destruction. A read through the Kings and Chronicles shows just how quickly and easily division brought about the destruction of their own nation. It only took a few kings for there to be sin and division within the nation of Israel to where the kingdom split, which led into a cycle of more sin more division, more pain, and ultimately slavery and exile. And there's, all, there's examples of this all over history. Right? The fall of Rome began with the death of Alexander and his nation being split among his successors, which got the ball rolling to that failure. So many superpowers across history have, have some kind of division that led to this. It was one of the big tactics of Germany in World War I, where they brought in Marxism and communism into the public sphere in Russia, and the people turned against the government and led that division to the downfall of that kingdom, that monarchy. There are so many examples of this. That when there's internal conflict, civil war, kingdoms almost always find themselves in ruin. But Jesus says that this is also true on the micro level. From kings and nations, this happens all the way down to households, to families. What happens in a marriage when there is division? When there is disunity and husband and wife oppose and undermine one another? Unaddressed, this leads to pain, sorrow, bitterness, hatred. It can lead to divorce and broken families that never heal. It leads to children scarred with abandonment and no clear picture of what a family is, no clear picture of what biblical love is. It can not only affect the household that they grew up in, but harm the one that they will one day start themselves. 
division is harmful on so many levels. It often leads to failure and destruction. Jesus uses this as something assumed. Something that his listeners would know without a doubt. Something that we see all the time. Something that we know without a doubt. And Jesus uses this as a rebuttal for their claims and argument against him. He says, if division leads to destruction and failure, which I think it's assumed that it does, and Satan is casting his own demons out of people, if he's using Jesus to undermine his own control over people's life, then how can he succeed? How can Satan's kingdom stand? Again, it's a simple, logical argument. It's rhetorical. He's not expecting them to argue their point to, have, to point to have some kind of answer here, but the answer is assumed in the way that Jesus asked the question. How can Satan, Satan's kingdom stand if it is divided against itself? The answer is it can't. How can Satan build his own palace? if he is himself taking a bulldozer straight to the foundation right after he starts building it. He can't. But Jesus continues. He uses more facts, more logic to own these haters. He continues saying, For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul. And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. Remember, according to Matthew and Mark's retelling of this same moment, Jesus is addressing the religious elite here. They are the ones who doubt him. And apparently their followers, he says sons here, but most likely it means their followers, people of their group, they are not only attempting to, but sometimes also succeeding in the casting out of demons as well. Jesus says, your sons, your, your followers, they themselves cast out demons. And if I'm doing it by the power of Beelzebul, how are they doing it? Whose power are they using? Um, in school, especially in math, they would call this the transitive property. Anybody know what that is? Anybody remember? Probably not. It's okay. Um, if A equals B and B equals C, then A must also equal C, right? Does that make sense? Is there, everybody get why I'm using this? Jesus is basically saying, if, if we're both casting out demons, but they're doing it by the power of God, wouldn't that be the same about me? Or vice versa, if I'm doing it by the power of the devil, wouldn't that mean the same about them? It's either or. It's not one or the other. Or it's not both, sorry. It's one or the other, not both. So Jesus has been using, again, logical arguments against them. He doesn't use some kind of power, doesn't call to a higher authority than himself because there is none. But he lays down the hammer. He said, he's also showing them that, right, this cannot be the power of Satan. And so the natural conclusion is, again, if this is not the power of Satan, then it must be the opposite, the thing that they're denying, the power of God. And if that's what it is, this is what Jesus says is the case. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Jesus says that if I am doing this by the finger of God, if God has his hands on my ministry, then there is only one conclusion. The kingdom of God has come upon you. It's not coming. It's not some future reality that you may or may not live to see, but it is here at this very moment, before your very own eyes, and you guys stand in opposition to it. To reject me is to reject this kingdom. The people Jesus is addressing here have been eagerly awaiting the arrival of this kingdom. They've been expecting God to deliver on his promises. They've been waiting for this day talk about it all the time. And it's not like the first time Jesus has brought up the kingdom. He and his disciples have been preaching this everywhere they go. It's, it's, it was specifically something that Jesus told his disciples to say on their own missionary, jerseys, missionary journeys. In fact, in a sermon from a couple weeks ago, Leo had mentioned that the phrase kingdom of God is mentioned something like 48 times in Luke. 
This isn't the first time it's being said. The kingdom of God was at the center of Jesus' ministry, and the arrival of Jesus meant the arrival of this kingdom. The very thing the people have been waiting for and expecting. But as we see here and as we see in the Gospels, the kingdom that Jesus brings is not the kingdom they wanted. In an interesting way, this is kind of the opposite of what happens in that, uh, that story in Second Kings that I had mentioned. Where God sends Elijah saying to King Ahaziah, is it not that there is a God in Israel that you go elsewhere? But Jesus here right now is saying unequivocally, there is a God in Israel. They just don't want him. Then Jesus continues, and here he kind of gives, he paints a picture, a bit of an anecdote. Um, and it first seems like it just gets thrown in at the end here. Like what you're, you're you know, saying the kingdom of God is here, and then you tell this story about someone being overthrown. What is this? But Jesus says, um, when a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he's trusted and divides his spoil. Jesus paints a picture here, and I think the idea is that this is a picture of the spiritual reality at work with the arrival of the kingdom of God. Jesus says that there is a strong man. He is fully armed. He has a palace that he guards, and it is full of his own goods, his own spoil. But one stronger comes and attacks him, and the stronger man prevails. The armor that the first man had that he trusted in, it does not save him. And the stronger man takes the armor and his goods. And Jesus, again, paints a picture here that's common, right? You think this idea of the stronger man overtaking the weaker man, there's plenty of stories about it, plenty of examples of it in history. But Jesus is not talking about a specific person or a hypothetical situation uh, in history, but he's talking about the spiritual realm. He's talking about the spiritual reality that is taking place with the arrival of the kingdom of God. And in this picture, Satan is the strong man mentioned at first. He has set up shop in our world. He has taken souls captive. He has enslaved them to sin and death. And he feels strong and secure in his power. He guards his palace, gloats in it. This is mine. These are my prisoners. But with the arrival of the kingdom of God comes the stronger man. With the arrival of the kingdom of God comes Jesus. And he does not simply teach good morals. He does not simply heal people. He does not simply just give sight to the blind, a voice to the mute, or raise the dead. But Jesus comes to wage war on Satan and the powers of darkness. And when he wages war, he overcomes. He brings the kingdom of darkness to ruin, ruin and frees the souls that it holds captive. Satan and the forces of evil have a strong grip on people. We see it even today. But they cannot stand up to Jesus when he wages war on them. The last couple of weeks, we've been looking at Jesus teaching us to pray. And within that prayer, Jesus tells us to pray, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. And when Leo preached on that prayer, he broke that down for us. And when we pray, your kingdom come, I think the scene that Jesus describes here is one of the things that we are to have in mind, even now today. That Christ would come and wage war on and overthrow the evil in our lives and the lives of those around us that his power would be made known in the whole world, in our nation, in our governments, in our communities, in our schools, our families, and in our hearts. This is why Jesus came. This was his mission. This is the, vic the work that Jesus began with his ministry, and ultimately it is the victory that Jesus won on the cross, defeating sin and death once and for all, overcoming this strong man, snatching souls out of his palace. But obviously, Satan and the forces of darkness are still at work today. They still hold on to souls, still grip our neighbors, our friends, family, strangers, 
They still hold on tight. And they will not have victory in the end, but they do what they can with a firm grip right now. And so we continue to pray that God's kingdom would, be, would come, that Jesus would continue this war on sin and death. And Jesus follows this picture of him throwing, overthrowing, conquering Satan with these words. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. I think simply put, the idea here is that there is no neutrality when it comes to Jesus. Either you are with him or you are against him. Either you are at work alongside him in the ministry of the gospel, or you yourself are a disruptor of that work and ministry. One who opposes and scatters. There is no in-between. There is no gray area. Jesus says these words to the religious elite who oppose him. To those who think that they themselves are speaking on behalf of God. That they know God. They know what God wants and what God's kingdom is going to look like. What the work of the gospel is or the work of the ministry is. But Jesus says that the actual kingdom of God is come upon them. It's here right now before their very eyes. And unless they follow him and work alongside him in the proclamation of the truth, then they work against him. That they work against God. And these same words apply for us today. Like we already said, we are to pray, let your kingdom come. It is a pray for us to God that his kingdom will be made manifest here. It is an appeal that God or appeal to God that we would see his power and work all around us, that we would see evil overthrown. But there's also a call for us to be active workers ourselves in that kingdom. That we, by the grace of God and by the power of the Holy Spirit, are actively working ourselves to overthrow evil in our lives, in the lives of our families, in the lives of our neighbors and community. If we are not ourselves working alongside Jesus to free souls from the bondage of sin and death, then we are not ourselves actively working for the advancement of the kingdom. If we are not gathering with Jesus, then we are scattering in our passivity. There is no neutrality. There is no sitting on the sidelines, letting other people do the work. If we are not with him, then we are against him. Now, this doesn't mean that every single one of us does this the same way, right? Not every single one is going to be a preacher or a teacher. Not everyone is going to be a missionary or a street evangelist, but we are all called to labor in the advancement of the kingdom of God and the proclamation of the gospel in one way or another. To some, that might mean raising a godly family with godly children. To some, it might mean befriending an unbelieving neighbor or coworker. To others, maybe works of charity that lead to gospel conversations and opportunities. Whatever it is that God will have us do, he is not content with us just sitting on the bench and being passive. Either we are gathering or we are scattering. Either we are working to overthrow evil or we are allowing evil to maintain power in our lives and the lives of those around us. And Jesus finishes our passage, like I said, with a bit of an odd one. It feels a little clustered or random in this. Right, Both what we were talking about earlier has a demon in it. Here we're talking about demons again, but how do they connect? What, what's the point of this? Um, I'll read it and let's get into to what's going on here. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest. In finding none, it says, I will return to my house from which I, which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. What? Right. I think these verses can be a little daunting. Um, at face value, what could they mean? Um, there's a demon that leaves a person. It's not clear if it is uh, exercised, if it's cast out, or if it leaves under its own desire. Um, it goes around the wilderness. Apparently demons hang out in the desert. Who knew? Um, it can't find a place to rest, so it goes back. 
it finds its old home, this person that it had possessed, clean and organized. This house is put in order. And so what it does is it goes and brings seven more demons, and they make this person's life worse than it was before. Why is Jesus including this here? What does it have to do with the rest of the passage? What's he trying to say? Is he trying to provide some deep insight about demonology, about the nature of demons, the way they possess? Is he implying that the evil that's been overthrown in a person's life can just as easily find victory again as long as it comes back with greater numbers? That freedom is only temporary? And while there might be some interesting discussions that arise out of considering those things, about talking about demonology and the nature of demons and what's going on here, I think Jesus' intention here is simply to provide a warning. He's not trying to say that demons have the power to overthrow the work that he has done. He's not saying that this mute man that's been freed from this demon earlier in this passage, that he can just as easily be uh, uh, possessed again, that these demons, as long as there's more of them, they could overthrow his work. That's not what he's trying to point out here. But I think the warning is that unless there is thorough conversion in a person's life, that they are not safe. I think, again, it's a warning against neutrality, just like we just said before. There is no middle ground. The person Jesus describes here is able to clean up their life because this demon has left them. They don't have this spiritual oppression, so they probably feel like a new person. They are free from this possession and are able to better themselves. But the problem arises is that no, even though the house has been swept, it's been cleaned up, it looks better, the house is still vacant. It's still open. It's open to an evil and wicked tenant that is free to return and bring his friends to do that person more harm. And as I was looking over this passage, just trying to figure out what it means, looking at commentaries, I found a series of sermons by J.C. Ryle on the book of Luke. And I opened up to where he speaks on this. And J.C. Ryle, right, he probably preached this or assembled this book of sermons in, eight, in the 1850s. I think he's probably got a more eloquent way to say these things than I would, even if I tried to paraphrase him. Um, but I think what he says is really helpful here for us. kind of gives us that um, picture of that there is no neutrality. It is one or the other. Regarding this, these verses, J.C. Ryle says, there is no safety except in thorough Christianity. To lay aside open sin is nothing unless grace reigns in our hearts. To cease to do evil is a small matter if we do not also learn to do good. The house must not only be swept and whitewashed, a new tenant must be introduced. The outward life must not only be decorated with the formal trappings of religion. The power of vital religion must be experienced in the inward man. The devil must not only be cast out, but the Holy Spirit must take its place. Christ must dwell in our hearts by faith. We must not only be moralized, but spiritualized. We must not only be reformed or changed, but born again. I think it's an eloquent and beautiful way to see this, right? That this person who has been freed of this spiritual oppression, they are like a home, right? This is Jesus' words. And, and J.C. Ryle bases what he says off of that. They're like a home, and the evil tenant has left, but a new, holy, righteous tenant must be introduced or else that evil tenant will come back and harm this person's life again. It is not enough to just change behavior, to be moralized, to act different, to overcome certain types of sins, but the Holy Spirit must indwell us. We must be born again. And so the obvious question for us here is, what about us? Especially of us who have grown up in the church, who have known things about Jesus, things about Christianity, who have heard the right things our whole lives. We've known what a Christian looks like, walks like, talks like. But are we kind of like this person who cleaned up the house, who looks good on the outside, who has improved behavior, 
but we are vacant internally. The Holy Spirit does not dwell in us. We have not, by faith, trusted in Christ and the salvation that he brings. Is our knowledge of Christ a superficial exterior thing or is it an internal thing? And for any of us that are maybe still pondering Christianity, still thinking about it, there is no in-between. There is no just simple moral improvements that you can make to save yourself, but you must, in faith, cast yourself at the feet of Jesus. You must be born again. And the good news of the gospel is that Jesus offers that. That his kingdom has come. He has done the work to overthrow Satan, to put to death sin. He has sacrificed himself on the cross that we might be free of spiritual oppression, of the chains that Satan has us in, that the Holy Spirit might indwell us and make us a new man, not just a changed man, a new woman, not just a changed and morally improved woman. Jesus offers this freely to all of us. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for, for your word. We thank you that you are who you say you are, the Holy One of God. And that you have come to wage war on Satan, to wage war on sin and death. You have come to bring life, not to just give us a book of of rules or moral deeds that we can accomplish to, to find meaning in life. But Lord, you gave yourself up. You came, bore our sin, shame on the cross to give us life, to redeem us and bring us back to God, that we might be one with you, Lord. We thank you for that. And Lord, I pray for each and every one of us as we think about what it means to stand before you. There is no neutrality. Either we are for you or we are against you. Either we are with you, gathering, or we are scattering. And Lord, what a dangerous place it is to be, to stand in opposition to you. And so, Lord, we pray that your kingdom would come, that your spirit would be at work within us, within those around us, within our families, within our communities, Lord that we would see your kingdom manifest here in the way that you are victorious over sin and death, in the way that you save souls and redeem them. And Lord, work in us and, and push us towards that same work ourselves, that we'd be active participants in your kingdom. Then when we pray your kingdom come, we would ourselves go out and work towards that kingdom. Lord, you are good. We thank you and we love you. In Jesus' name, amen.